20, Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, page 1177 of the Church Bibles, 1821 of the large print edition. Ephesians 6 from verse 10 onwards. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. So be strong in the Lord. I wonder what you think of when you hear the word strong. When we use the word in day-to-day -day language, strong might be associated with physical strength, or it might be associated with strength of character, strength of personality. And we speak of a strong leader, or the leader we have might be criticized for not being strong enough. It seems that quite often we yearn for strong leadership. Strong can mean not giving in to opposition, just going ahead with what you think needs doing, not giving up in the face of adversity. And in day-to-day -day use, it is rooted in the person. We speak of a strong person. The Bible, however, speaks of a completely different kind of strength, particularly here in this passage. Strength that isn't based on you and I, not based on a person who might or might not be strong, but based on God and on his power. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that personal strength of character is not what will get us through life and help us to be fruitful Christians. Something else is required. The Apostle Peter, as he was sort of following Jesus around during Jesus' time on earth, I think probably would have considered himself a strong person. But he needed to go through the humbling experience of realizing that he didn't have the strength of character that he thought he did. He told Jesus, maybe with some matter of pride, even if all fall away, I will not disown you. That's in Matthew 
26. And then, of course, we all know what followed. And he denied Jesus three times. However, when he then came to rely on the strength of God rather than his own strength, he became the leader of the early church. And then he didn't give in to opposition that was an awful lot stronger than what he actually faced that evening, that he denied Jesus three times. In Acts, we read how uh, he and John are brought before the Sanhedrin, so the Jewish leadership, so quite an intimidating experience. And it says then in verse 8 of chapter 4 of Acts, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and he gave a speech, he gave an account of things that had been happening, how God had been acting, and why they were speaking out in the way they were. And then it says a few verses later, um, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So here, Peter is in a situation that is indeed scary and difficult. And I think most of us faced with sort of a, a board of people like the Sanhedrin would be intimidated. But he was in a different kind of strength there. It wasn't his own personal strength and conviction that made him stand up and speak there. But it was the Holy Spirit in him. And that's what Paul is speaking about in our passage here in Ephesians 6. He is speaking about drawing on the power of God rather than our own inner strength in order to be strong. That's where true strength needs to come from. Now this passage is often used as the basis of teaching on so-called spiritual warfare. And sometimes this teaching goes way beyond what this particular passage actually says. A lot of books have been written over the years on spiritual warfare. There have been sort of thorough theoretical academic tomes trying to identify biblical principles and methods of how spiritual warfare should be conducted. And there are also much more popular works of fiction, novels, describing a spiritual battle that a certain church or a group of Christians finds themselves in. And one well-known author has even made it onto the New York Times bestseller list. So lots, millions, I presume, of copies of his books on spiritual warfare have been sold. And they're very exciting to read. Now, I'm afraid I can't promise you that tonight will be as exciting as those novels. And certainly, I don't think we will make it onto the Times bestseller list. But we will look at what Paul is saying we need to consider when we think of spiritual warfare, if you want to use that phrase, or what we need to think about to be strong in the Lord. Maybe that phrase is preferable. 
a little bit of context on the book of Ephesians or the letter or to the Ephesians. It's about, I would say, the nature of the gospel. It's about the good news that God has chosen us to give us new life, a life in fellowship with him and all the blessings that entails the life that he wants to give us. It's all about reconciliation, about unity, and about Christian life and family, about the church and the world. All those kind of topics is what Paul is concerned with here. It's all about the Christian life and everything that that entails. And in this Christian life, we find ourselves in conflict. That's inevitable. We find ourselves in conflict with the world that doesn't know Christ and the powers that are behind that world. If we are to be truly a light to the world, a testimony to the world, both by the way we live and by what we preach, we have to draw on God's power. It is not something that we can do. It's not a human discussion, a debate where we try to convince people. It is a spiritual battle for the very souls of people. And we can't bring that about. But we are instruments God has chosen to use us in certain ways. In order to do that, we need to draw on God's power. And earlier on in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul speaks about his power. If you just turn with me to chapter 1 of Ephesians, and we'll read a few verses from 18 onwards, 118. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he, was, he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparable great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him as his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the, uh, for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So in, in this short section as well, he talks about authorities and powers and dominions as he does in our section of chapter 6. But the key thing to understand is verse 22. God placed all things under his, under Christ's feet and appointed him to be the head over everything. That's the perspective we need to come from, that Christ is over all. So, Talking about this power, it is not a special kind of spiritual warfare. It is that Christ dwells in our hearts and that we grasp what that actually means when we speak of the love of Christ. 
if that becomes a reality, then it will lead to unity in the church. It will lead to unity between different groups of Christians. For instance, in Paul's days, it would have been the Jewish Christians and the Gentiles. It will lead to unity in the family. It will lead to Christian behavior and proclaiming the gospel of Christ in a credible way in the face of a hostile world. So the effect of this power that we're talking about is not that Christ takes us out of the way of trouble. It's not that he puts an invisible, impenetrable wall around us and protects us from everything. He doesn't take us out of the world. But it is a power to grasp the extent of God's love. That's what we've just read. And it's, for us at least, a very unusual way to talk of power. When we talk about power, you exert it, don't you? You do something with it. You make things happen in the way that you want them to happen. That is the human way of exhorting power. Paul talks about power to grasp the true extent, the high depths width of God's love. That's a much more important kind of power that we're looking at here in this passage. To really truly understand or at least increase our understanding of what God's love is, how much it entails, what he has given us, what he is still day to day doing for us. If that realization becomes more real, we can enter into that spiritual battle. You will probably have gathered, I don't like the phrase particularly, but we can enter into that in a credible way in the face of a hostile world. And the world is hostile to us. It rejects and opposes the gospel. And our role is to stand by the gospel or stand against that rejection. But not by clever church planting schemes or special prayer techniques that people have discovered that so far were kind of hidden, but now we realize how we finally should do it. No, it's by being strong in the Lord and by grasping the extent of his love. So what does Paul mean by that? Yeah, the very first verse in our passage, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. What does he mean by that? That's what we need to try and wrap our heads around. Firstly, we need to realize, like I said, conflict is part of the Christian life. If you want a humorous but also very apt description of that kind of conflict, then read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape letters, as I'm sure many of you have done. There are letters from sort of a senior devil to his nephew, who is much more junior, who is sort of starting out his career as a devil and tempter of Christians. And he gives him instructions on how to go about it, and he tells him off when things go wrong and the 
man he was supposed, the nephew was supposed to be working with, turns from a nominal Christian to a committed Christian. So the letters take on a very angry tone when he starts to attend the prayer meetings. The devil gets really upset and nervous. There's a lot of, of insight in there. It was written by Lewis after all. So it's well worth a read. So conflict is part of the situation we're in. But it is not a conflict with people. In this last song we sang, it, it talks about we... I would need to go back and I would lo lose my place on the sheet. But it talks about uh, we, we loathe the tempter, but we love the tempted. The phrase was slightly different, but uh, we can go back to it later, but I don't want to lose my place now. But that's the thing to realize. We are up, up against opposition, but it is not opposition against people so much. Although you might get insulted in some parts of the world, way worse than that. You might get killed by people, but that is not the conflict, that's an expression of the conflict that Paul is talking about. There is a devil and he is out to obstruct us and he is out to obstruct the gospel. And when you therefore find conflict in your life, it is not necessarily something to be upset about as long as you're not sort of going out of your way to annoy people. In that case, maybe you should be upset about it. But if that's not the case and there is still conflict in your life, I would almost say, well, don't worry about it. It is part and parcel of our lives as Christians. It is not a sign that things are going wrong. It is not a sign that you are weak. It is because you're a Christian. It's part and parcel of your Christian life. You do have to know, however, how to handle it. Verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It is not against the people. It's about what's behind it. The opposition against the gospel. So it is a spiritual conflict and we need spiritual measures. So don't draw on your own strength, but draw on God's. That's what Paul is saying. Be strong in the Lord. And then he says it twice. Put on the armor of God. You're not well equipped to deal with that. It's another world. You are not equipped to go in there and sort it all out for God, no matter how faithful you are or how much you pray. But we don't need, I uh, say it again, special tactics. We don't need plans of attack. Paul says we need to stand firm. And he says it three times. Verse 11, verse 13, verse 14. Stand, stand, stand. It's kind of a basic requirement. Yeah? If you go with the analogy of a soldier or an army, then you can't hope to do very well in battle if you don't stand, if you flee. 
if you go with oops, there's the enemy and all the arrows or bullets are flying my way, it would be quite a natural reaction to say, well, let's get out of here. This is not a healthy place. So it's counterintuitive, counternatural almost to then stand in those kind of situations. And it certainly takes something for soldiers to do so, I'm sure. For us, in a sense, it's easier since we know the battle has already been won. The soldiers need to fight the battle, the outcome is unsure until they either win or lose. We know the battle has already been won. So at times it might be scary, it might be intimidating, it might be hard, suffering might be involved, but you know it's gonna be okay because Jesus has already won that battle. So that makes the standing rather than the fleeing an awful lot easier. But it is important. It's the reason that Paul repeats it. He says it three times. But the standing, the standing firm doesn't mean that we're passive. It means that we have to keep the ground of the gospel. We need to stand on what we have. And what we have is the gospel. And that's the only thing that really matters in this context. It doesn't matter what people at work or your neighbors or your friends might say about your Christian convictions. It doesn't matter if they make jokes about you or even ridicule you or go even further, ostracize you. None of those things are pleasant. That's why Paul uses this battle analogy. But it is not important. It's important what's going on behind it. People might hurt you by what they say, but there is something else going on, and that's the battle over the truth of the gospel. Paul makes very clear here and in the passage we read in the beginning that this battle is against spiritual forces. It might well be that we see opposition coming from people or institutions, but we must be clear about the ultimate source. In verse 12, the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, spiritual forces, etc. That's what's behind it, and that's what the battle is against. Now, the illustration that Paul uses here of the armor might well be based on the Roman foot soldier. A lot of commentators seem to think so, and it, it makes sense, and the readers would certainly have thought of the Roman soldier with his kit and his weapons. For the Roman army, battle was very much a corporate and organized affair. So it wasn't so much a bunch of individual soldiers with their swords and spears or whatever they might have had, letting out a blood-curling battle cry and then storming down the hill against the enemy. No, they were organized, they were in a square, in a closed formation, marching together, shields to the front, shields to the side, shields to the back, shield on top, so that if the enemy shot arrows at them, they would be protected. And that only worked in the group as long as they stayed 
in their group of 10 or 50 or whatever they might have been in. The individual soldier would have been much more vulnerable, information much less so. And the same is true for us as Christians. The Christian life is a corporate affair, not just for those few meetings we have during the week, but when we go home, we take the concerns we've heard of brothers and sisters with us. We might give them a phone call, a text, we might invite them, we will pray for them. It's a corporate affair, it's the body of Christ, it's a living organism. That's what we are part of. We don't, therefore, also face the enemy alone, but we face the enemy as Christ's church. So, the Roman foot soldier, you can't help but be reminded of that. But there's also other passages in the Old Testament where this kind of armor language is actually applied to God. Just as an example, in Isaiah 59, he, and that's the Lord, he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. So there it's talking about breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation as applied to God. So it isn't solely just an illustration taken from a picture of a soldier that someone saw hanging on a wall. It's also the idea of God who is fighting this battle. And all these things that we will be talking about in the army, armor, they're all things that come from God. So whilst we shouldn't read too much in the individual pieces of the soldier's army, the Christian concepts that are illustrated by them or that are behind them are crucial. So the belt of truth, the belt would hold the soldier's inner garment up so he wouldn't trip over it, so he could more easily move about. It holds the different parts of his armor and whatever weapons together. And it's the truth of the gospel that we are to stand for. That's the thing that for us holds it all together. And it's also the truth that is constantly under attack. But it's the only way of salvation. But it will always be attacked and that is not something that we need to be particularly worried about from, oh, our times are so bad Look at how it's attacking any kind of Christian truth we have. No, it's always happened. It's nothing new. After Jesus' death and resurrection, the early church in Acts, the first Pentecost, it didn't take long after the establishment of this early church for all kinds of heresies to come about, all kinds of cults, all kinds of sects, and they all focused on the very same thing, the truth about Jesus. And different sects took different approaches, different heresies took different approaches, but it was all focused on Jesus. Either Jesus couldn't have been divine, he wasn't God, or he wasn't really fully human, 
or he didn't really truly die on the cross, it just seems that he died, but actually he survived. These are all core truths of the gospel, that the Son of God came down to earth, the Son of God who himself was fully divine, and he died on the cross for our sins, and he was raised to death. Uh, raised to life. All those four things are attacked by various heresies. Because you take those things out, you take out the truth of the gospel. And that's the battle that's going on, and that's the thing that we are here to stand for, to represent that truth, the belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness. Now for the soldier, the breastplate would obviously be here covering, protecting various vital organs. Now an attack on us as a Christian would or could take the form of an accusation that you're not really a Christian. Just look at yourself, look at the stuff you did last week, the thoughts you had about this work colleague or neighbor. Now you call yourself a Christian? Yeah, okay, you had yourself baptized, but the pastor obviously thought you were better than you really were. Those thoughts can creep in, and we know where they come from. Righteousness is being in the right relationship with God, and that doesn't depend on you. It would never have happened if it depended on us. It happened because of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, the forgiveness of sins. That's what puts us in the right relationship with God. So if it doesn't depend on me, yeah, then it might well be true that maybe I had terrible thoughts about the neighbor. Well, I go on my knees and I pray for forgiveness and I try and resist those thoughts next time and I battle them. But my salvation doesn't depend on my thoughts. My salvation solely depends on God and what he has done. And that's the breastplate of righteousness. That is how righteousness protects us. We are in the right relationship with God because he guarantees it. It doesn't depend on us. We can take Jesus at his word. He died for our sins. If we have accepted his forgiveness, we are declared righteous. We are in the right relationship with God. It doesn't depend on how good we are at doing certain things and how well we avoid other things. It depends on Christ. That's the breastplate that protects our vital organs. The boots would help the soldier to move about, protect his feet so he doesn't hurt his feet. If his feet are hurt, he can't go anywhere. So it's kind of crucial that the boots work. And the boots represent the readiness to proclaim, to move ahead in proclaiming the gospel. That's the reason that we are here. That's the great commandment that Jesus gave his disciples. Make disciples. That's what they were told. Not just be happy, ooh, we're disciples, we're saved, this is a great life with the Holy Spirit. But no, pass that message on. Go and make disciples. Paul here calls it the gospel of peace.
peace. Peace is the opposite of warfare. And the only true way to peace is through this gospel. And people might not realize that, people might misunderstand that, people might attack you, etc., etc. Don't blame them. There is something behind them that is going on that tries to keep them away from that truth. And I've heard Christians say, looking back at when they became a Christian, how could I have been so blind for so many years? Well, so many people still are. That's what is going on. The shield of faith, just like the shoulder, uh, the soldier is protected by the breastplate. He also has a shield to protect him. So we are protected by our faith. No matter what accusations come our way, we know that Christ is on our side. So that is linked to that breastplate of righteousness the shield of faith, as is the next one, the helmet of salvation. Our head, our thoughts should be protected by the fact that we are saved and that we belong to Christ and we shouldn't let doubts be sown there. You can't stand on your own convictions, you can't stand on your own strength that I want to hold on to that thought that I'm saved. No, you need to rely on God. Paul says in Romans that the Holy Spirit prays for us, even in utterances that we can't say ourselves. We've got the Holy Spirit of God, this deposit, we called it earlier, this guarantee. That's the thing that we can rely on. And then the sword, the only offensive weapon here. The sword is the word of God, the word that needs to be proclaimed, the reason why we are still here, to proclaim the gospel, to preach the gospel, to share the gospel, to live out the gospel in the face of all those people around you, whether they're friendly or the opposite. That's our task. And it depends on all those things above, on all those different segments of the armor. It all works together so that his words can be preached. And then finally, and now we've well and truly moved away from the armor, finally there's prayer. Not part of a soldier's armor, but a crucial part of our lives as Christians. And it includes, Paul says, pray for one another. Again, that corporate thought there. It's not just a vertical relationship between you and God. It's also horizontal to all the other family members around you. We pray for one another. Pray for all the saints, he says. And then he immediately puts it in practice in verse 19 by asking for prayer. Well, pray for me also that horizontal bit we talked about. Paul needs prayer. It's not like he's a super Christian, he's an apostle, he can do without it. No, he's just as vulnerable as anyone else. He needs this armor as much as anyone else. And he needs the prayers of his brothers and sisters as much as anyone else. So in conclusion, conflict 
is an integral part of our lives. We shouldn't let that upset us. But we're not alone in it. We are part of the church and we should take responsibility for one another and we should also be willing to lean on one another. It's all very well if people are there and they want to help me, but I'm too proud and I just push them away. Ah, I can do this on my own. If we have needs, we also need to be humble enough to admit that. But the life we lead is the battleground. It's not out there in the streets, wielding weapons, throwing stones. It's our lives. We are under a microscope. If people know that you're a Christian, there are certain expectations. And no matter how much they say they don't care about Christianity, ooh, I don't know anything about that. They know pretty well what a Christian should look like and what he or she should or shouldn't do. I'm sure you have noticed that. Just look at the teaching earlier chapters of Ephesians, Ephesians, where Paul is talking about those kind of things like the family life, like the life of the church, Christian life, unity and maturity, etc. All those kind of things need to be practiced, need to be lived out, need to be realized in order for that sword to be able to be wielded. If the soldier doesn't stand, he can't even begin to think of using his sword. He needs to stand, and stand is on that Christian life, on that realization that God loves you, that you've got brothers and sisters, and those kind of things permeating through your life. So yes, the life we lead is a battleground. And if our lives are corrupted, then our testimony becomes worthless. That's why all those preceding chapters in Ephesians. We are to live out the gospel, pray and work for its advance, but all based on the quality of our lives that, again, God enables us to live through his blessing and his spirit. It's all centered on God. This whole armor of God, the idea with all the different pieces that it's all separate is obviously misleading. It all centers on God. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and his word. They're all things of God that God equips us with and that God graciously gives us. Shall we close by singing in heavenly armor? will enter the land.